I'm Esther Almar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. This Spin, our weekly all-women-of-color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air across the United States and internationally in Ghana and London. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. This week on The Spin, reimagining resistance in the era of number 45. Today in part one, we talk media and resistance. We are in the world of alternative facts. So what happens to the fourth estate? What is the fate of storytelling, investigative journalism, media's mission of fact, not fiction? What does media and resistance look like under number 45? And in part two, it's the 61st session of the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. This year's theme, Women's Economic Empowerment in the Changing World of Work. Let's talk resistance as work and the economic toll of that work in this ever-changing world. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Dream Hampton and Dr. Brittany Cooper. Dream Hampton is a filmmaker and writer. Her latest short film is Jay-Z, War on Drugs, From Prohibition to Gold Rush, which she produced. It was featured in the New York Times and is nominated for Best Nonprofit Video for the 2017 Do-Gooder Awards. Dream's previous documentary feature was Treasure, From Tragedy to Trans Justice, Mapping a Detroit Story. Dr. Brittany Cooper is a scholar, writer and public intellectual. Dr. Cooper is Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. Her latest book is The Crunk Feminist Collection, together with Susanna Morris and Robin M. Boylaw. And her writing has been published in Salon.com and currently in Cosmo.com. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hello. Thanks for having me. We continue our discussion series, Reimagining Resistance in the Era of Number 45, The Media. What happens to the fourth estate? The world of media in this political climate of alternative facts. What happens to the ideas of truth and truth-telling, storytelling in this moment? Whose stories matter when the leader of the free world daily turns immigrants into criminals in 140 characters? So there's a fight between superpower number 45 and the fourth estate. And leading voices are calling to reimagine, redefine, and recalibrate this world that is media. CNN's chief international correspondent, Christiana Amanpour, is fighting for press protection, press freedom, and a return to investigative journalism in America, land of the not always so free and home of the apparently not so brave. Take a listen. I feel that right now we face an existential crisis, a real threat to the very relevance and usefulness of our profession. So tonight, above all, it's really an appeal to protect journalism itself, to recommit to robust, fact-based reporting without fear and without favor on the issues. I believe in being truthful, not neutral. And I believe we must stop banalizing the truth. We must be doing many, many stories about the dangerous right 
the dangerous rise of the far right, not just here but also across Europe. We must fight against the normalization of what is unacceptable. We, the media, I strongly believe, can either contribute to a more functional system or to deepening the political dysfunction. And which world do we want to live? I keep asking myself, which world do we want to leave our children? Christiane Amanpour, they're receiving an award from the Commission to Protect Journalism. Now, number 45 has spun a narrative in which he frames the fourth estate, the media, as essentially anti-American and against the people. Listen. The media isn't just against me. They're against all of you. That's really what they're against. We're going to open up the libel laws. We should reinstate libel laws so that you can go after people nowadays when they make really egregious statements. Right now, they can say anything they want to say. Someday, in the not-too-distant future, if I win, they're not going to get away with this stuff. The 45th president of the United States there. Now, this media environment is one of the elevation, the rise and rise of Breitbart, the extreme right online website that literally turns lies into fact. Fox News has the highest cable news ratings, and to be fair, it has had for a very long time. And this media is telling a story of white identity under threat, requiring protection and rewriting laws in order to get that protection. So we're in the era of the rise of alt-right, or its full name, alternative right. Take a listen to Richard Spencer, alt-right creator and president of the National Policy Institute, a white nationalist think tank. Our lived experience is being a young white person in 21st century America, seeing your identity be demeaned. I've lived in this multicultural mess my entire life, and I'm trying to get out of it. Richard Spencer there, National Policy Institute president and creator of Alt-Right. So this narrative within this new media that speaks of a diminishing white identity and whiteness under siege is reflected across parts of Europe. So what does media and resistance need to look like with this rise of white identity threat and alternative facts? Let's talk media and reimagining resistance in this era of number 45. Dreamhampton, let me start with you. Your thoughts. The Amanapur clip that you played when she talked about defending journalism, I think is really key. She gave an example when she gave that speech of the kind of false equivalences that we have seen for years, really, where you will have two or three people, and we've seen that when we, they find, I remember seeing the new Black Panther Party on television, like, what the heck? But she used climate deniers, where you have two or three scientists who are, who are speaking very soberly and, and informed and with all of their, you know, credentials and research behind them, and then you'll have some nut from the Republican Party who's saying the earth is flat. And she was saying that this is just absolutely, this has to stop this way that in an attempt to have so-called balanced journalism, we pull the nuts out of the closet. So she's saying truth over so-called fairness. I don't know that that's going to be enough in this moment to kind of face what we're facing, which is the rise. I mean, President Bannon, which is the only president I recognize, is the architect of a very strong movement that began in places like Stormfront. Being from Michigan, I'm very familiar with the website that Michigan militia folks click on every morning to get their news, and that story has always, at least around Detroit, been one of black incompetence, white supremacy. And we're watching 
a white diasporic movement, one that black folks once fantasized about. We once fantasized about being able to have kind of diasporic unity in the way, well, not in the same way, but white folks are having that moment. We are watching a movement that we can't just talk about in terms of America because President Bannon has direct ideological ties to white supremacists all around the world. And one of the things that we saw in a piece that we didn't read for this article, but I'm sure we'll win a Pulitzer, which is The White Flight of Derek Black in the Washington Post, it was a story about the stepson of the founder of Stormfront, the incredibly racist news site that is just like Breitbart. And, you know, he talked about the week that Obama was elected, there being a convening in Jackson, Mississippi, of factions in America that don't usually get together, white nationalists, Nazis, Klan members, who all have different reasons for being factioned off, and actually meeting, like the kind of conspiracy dreams that I expect my 5%ers my 5% friends to, like, dream up. They actually Mm -hmm. met in a Jackson, Mississippi hotel room the week Obama was elected and came up not with, uh, of course, there was increased violence and racial violence and terror in the Obama era. So, yes, I don't doubt that that was cooked up. But the thing that Derek Black remembers was the language that they began to use and his surprise now that he has walked back from this white nationalist upbringing to see it so mainstream in the Republican Party. So we are really fighting something that has its roots in the terror of the white imagination of its decline. And I'm here to celebrate that. I mean, we are seeing the increasing irrelevance of white men. And I think that that will continue, and we are going to see them really, really turn the table over on their way out. And the news is going to have to stand and be sober and, and brave. Brittany Cooper. I think it's right that this is white supremacy's last stand, but I think that they're going to do a great amount of destruction during this last stand. And what concerns me is that in many ways, the media can be held responsible for the rise of Trump. And part of it is a is a structural problem. The structural problem is that there's still this belief in the myth of objectivity, that we can present two sides of the same issue and that reasonable people can parse what is true and what is false. But what is actually true is that folks come with such deep ideological investment. And we have lots of social scientific research at this point that says that when folks believe deeply in something, then the addition of facts, they twist those facts to fit the frame that they already have. They don't allow the facts to determine the frame. And so if you're thinking about white people who are really fearful because they see the browning of America, they see the sort of last vestiges of white supremacy, and they're deeply afraid, then they have a deep emotional investment in believing that the world is against them, believing that all of these forces are coming to take them down, and then fighting back from that position. And it's very scary because they're fighting from that position. And while they may be on the decline, they still have more power than most Black folks have on their best day. So this is the thing that concerns me because when the media says, well, we need to sort of get back to doing what it is that we do best, part of what the media seems to claim that it does best is to really have this objective fact-presenting stance. And at this point, I think we're beyond that. And I think that folks really have to make clear here are our ideological investments and try to appeal to folks 
you know, sense of survival and saying to them, you know, like at some point, you know, we should have just said to working class white folks, if you elect Trump, you're going to really ruin your quality of life. And frankly, that's not actually what happened during the coverage of the campaign. You know, instead, it was just presented as competing views. So those kinds of things concern me because I'm not sure that we can unring this bell. My read of the history is that when white folks get on this track, then essentially the only thing that turns them around is that they have to experience the devastation of their choices. And the really unfortunate part of that is that then Black folks and other vulnerable folks experience that devastation far more than white people do. But when white people get a taste of the devastation, then typically they turn around and they pursue another view. So those things concern me. But I also think this other point that Dream raises is really right and one we should be thinking about, which is when I listened to the Richard Spencer clip, there was a way in which these folks are always sort of imagining the future that they want to have, right? And so they're always imagining new terms. They're always sort of doing the methodical work of kind of crafting a world for themselves. And there was a great piece, a couple of weeks back as well, where this young woman who came up in the U.S. conservative homeschool movement talked about the ways in which that too was a radicalizing space. It's a kind of move for Christian homeschoolers. And putting them in high school speech and debate programs was this training ground to help them become really sophisticated at political analyses that shored up white supremacy, but that seemed really reasonable on their surface. And it was very scary to me as a person who used to participate in the world of speech and debate as a high school and college student to know that these folks had marshaled those tools, the very tools we're talking about, the ability to evaluate critical argumentation, the ability to sort of take in information and evaluate it, and that they're using it to promote their agenda, right? And so the only hope I have around this is that I do think when I look, for instance, at the movement for Black Lives, which in this moment has actually been a bit less visible in terms of protests and has sort of gone inward and is doing this policy work, I do see a comparable sort of effort on the Black left to figure out what kind of future we want and to start trying to do some of this long-term planning. I don't think that we'll get there in 10 years or even 20 years, but I do think if we take the long-term view that, you know, in 30 or 40 years, we might see some things really begin to shift, right? At this point, that's my only hope. But in general, we're behind the age ball because these folks have been thinking about this moment for the last 30 to 40 years. I think specifically about mainstream media, left-wing media, CNN, MSNBC, all those spaces, and this delusion that they are living in of proving to number 45 and that administration that they are willing to be fair in the examination of the elevating levels of policy craziness that are coming the way of the world. And that in this insistence on proving this notion of being willing to be fair, that they are missing the work that they are required to do in this moment. And so for me as a working journalist who has worked globally, I have two specific questions. One is, when will that kind of mainstream media decide what it needs to look like in this moment? Is it simply going to stand for the next four years and consistently wait for the craziness of a number 45, 140 character missive 
and then do the work of rebutting it, investigating it, establishing what was always known, which is it's one lie that detracts and deflects from something incredibly serious that is happening and that actually requires attention. Is that going to be its stance? Or is it going to recognize that this is a peculiar and particular moment that is about how the inevitable decreasing reality of of whiteness and white identity is reacting like a, a cornered and caged lion. So, of course, they are their most devastating as they're thrashing, fighting for some kind of survival. And I listened to Richard Spencer really carefully and I think about what he was saying and that is making extremism mainstream. And that is this moment in which we're living in, that that extreme right-wing reality has become this so-called mainstream. So in other words, it's becoming average. It's being normalized. And so one, this false notion of objectivity for me is manifesting in this insistence that we will be fair as it relates to number 45. And this is simply not that moment, which is why my question was, what does media and resistance look like in this moment when white identity in the form of number 45 and the administration has made a clear decision about what they're working to do. And I think your point, Dream, about this kind of white diasporic movement gathering that is happening in the rise of white nationalism across parts of Europe, the reality of Brexit in the UK, these incredibly anti-Muslim campaigns that are doing better and better and better. Just a recent ruling from the European court that it is no longer illegal to prevent Muslim women from covering up. It's no longer illegal to tell them to uncover their heads, that that is now a legal thing to do, that to discriminate against somebody's religion has been legalized. We're watching the normalization of something. So my question becomes, what does resistance look like when this is happening? And I just do not believe that we've even faced, confronted the moment in which we are actually standing in. We're still having irrelevant conversations about notions of objectivity when that boat has so long sailed that I don't have language. And so it makes me ask the question about all the importance of online sites and the kinds of long-form work critical essay work, critical analysis, how important this becomes when I just think what's defined as mainstream media is having some argument in a corner somewhere and the world is going to help. The media world is going to help. Your thoughts on that? Let me start with you, Dream. Well, I think that what Brittany said about, you know, facts not mattering and people kind of just going further into their own holes and their own belief systems is kind of key. Because a lot of this work I really do look at as white folks' work, which is why I thought it was also interesting that Brittany noted that BLM isn't as visible in this moment. Of course, BLM created, just as the Civil Rights Movement did, the kind of template for how to move forward, <laughs> um, just as the right. anti-war movement and the feminist movement used all of the tactics for disruption and all of the things that we're seeing Indivisible do now are not that different than Ferguson kids shutting down the highway or Minneapolis okay. kids, you know, shutting down the mall. So we are seeing the same tactics employed from a a resistance. But in terms of the media, what we know is that talking about race turns white folks off. The only time they want to talk about race is to talk about 
again, what, you know, we've, we've moved so beyond someone like Frances Cress Welsing for really good reasons, but I find myself <laughs> visiting her work. <laughs> she talks about it as a biological kind of terror, but it's a terror in the white imagination that we've, for instance, seen in science fiction for decades, which is of being enslaved by a conquering army. And in science fiction, it's always with superior technology, but with Islam, it's with basically soldiers who blindly and with a great amount of discipline will conquer them if they don't in kind kind of army up. So that's what you hear if you listen to A Day of Infowars, if you visit Breitbart, if you listen to someone like Richard Spencer, if you listen to the architects of this kind of ideology in Deutschland, if you go back to Israel, actually, where this narrative around fighting terror with a certain amount of demographic, you know, I mean, Israeli women are almost forced to have children because there is always the sheer terror of a population, you know, a demographic kind of takeover. So we're hearing that language in America. It's difficult for these mainstream, you know, media places and these trained journalists who, like you said, are wrongly turning to their training for, like, objectivity. And what's needed is a kind of activism journalism. And maybe that doesn't mean that you talk about race. Maybe Russia is the rub for President Bannon's base. And I've seen that. I've heard that in reports where, you know, folks who respond to that. They don't like the fact that he tweets. They think that he lacks decorum. And this Russia thing is a rub for them for all the wrong reasons. They think Putin is a communist. And, I mean, we're dealing, again, with the anti-intellectualism of America, which Asimov talked about a long time ago in a great quote. But that is where we are. And I don't know that talking about his racism and even this rise of white supremacy is going to be what moves folks. I do believe, that, like Brittany said, that as 26 million people get kicked off of health care and find themselves in all kinds of trouble because of that, that we may not see a second term. But this has been a long game, you know, began in some ways by Karl Rove 40 years ago. And I don't know, I'm at a loss, Esther, to directly think about your question, because that's where the despair sets in. And there's no way to overstate the despair in this moment. Brittany Cooper. The one thing that I read this week was that Rachel Maddow, there was a story about how the thing that has sent her ratings through the roof has been that she stopped covering Trump's tweets and she literally just started covering his policies and his administration. And so they had seen a lag in the ratings whenever they would take the bait in terms of what he was doing on Twitter, but that they had really seen a sort of spike in people tuning in and wanting to get a hold of what was happening whenever they began to cover actual nuts and bolts policy. So I think that there is a hunger in this moment in which people are trying to understand what is going on. I have a new book coming out next year. And when I spoke with my editor at my press, you know, she said, look, there's this sort of hunger we're seeing sales of books that deal with politics really going up. People are trying to understand how we got to this moment. So I do think that on the one hand, there's an attempt to understand. And I think that if the media can do anything, it has to remember that the media used to be the place that told us, here are the things that are important. The mainstream media really set the tone of the conversation. And so one of the things that has happened in this shift of power in which digital media has so much power, on the one hand, that has led to movements, right, that seeing young folks in Ferguson really pushed the story of what happened to Mike Brown 
force it into the news cycle was an exciting thing because it meant that folks from below were determining the kinds of stories that typically don't make it into the mainstream. But the other side of that, the, the terrible side of that, is that then when white populist movements also force particular narratives into the mainstream, and so there's a way that the kind of trained journalists in the last few years really have been so enamored with the sort of possibility of young people and digital media space that there was like an abdication of this role to set the narrative. And instead, the mainstream media really just began following the narrative. And so there has to be some balance there, right? That folks have to go back to that we still need good, trained people who know how to tell good stories and who know how to get to the root of an issue to do that kind of framing work. And what they need to do is the thing that hip hop teaches us, right? Which is always have your ear to the ground, have your ear to the streets, know what people people are talking about and know what matters, but certainly you don't just have to follow the narrative that's coming out of the streets. It's not the only thing that matters. And so if the media is going to do anything in this moment, and again, I'm still deeply skeptical about whether or not this bell can be unrung. I don't personally think it can, but that doesn't mean that you don't still show up and do your job. And so the media has to do the job of saying to us, here are the sort of issues that matter. And this is us using the tools that we have gone to school for and we have 20 or 30 years in this industry with and really doubling back down and saying, you know, we, particularly around politics issues, that we can do this. Now, that won't mean anything in terms of radicalization, right? It won't mean a sort of radical perspective around racial justice, because by and large, these are white folks who are still doing this kind of storytelling, and they don't have any deep investment in challenging this narrative. And part of the reason that we're seeing this challenge in the media is because white people, even liberal white people, still deeply believe in the unfettered reasonability of other white people, right? So even though you have sort of white folks on the alt-right who are just saying stuff that is maniacal and that meets the bounds of lunacy, right? There is still this sort of belief among white folks that, oh no, these are my family members. These are people I go to church with. These are people who live in the neighborhood. And, you know, they're reasonable people. And if we just present them the facts, they can sort of shift perspective. And so because white people believe in themselves fundamentally above all of these other principles, I don't know that we will see even liberal sort of left-leaning folks really doing the work to try to challenge their own people in ways that make a difference. But I do think that media and journalism has a critical role. And that role is that particularly in this moment where we're also seeing like public schools are really terrible. And so part of what that means is that we have one of the most uninformed American electorates that we've had in a couple of decades. We have people who have really low civics education. We have people who actually aren't reading long-form journalism at any mass level, because even though folks can read, their level of critical literacy skills have gone down. If you think about young people who have come through the public school system really since the late 80s and early 90s, these are not folks with a lot of training to really parse an argument through the length of a 2,500 or 3,000 word essay, right? And so in that moment, folks are going to be consuming what people on television tell them and what people on the internet tell them. And so journalists are more important than ever if we have any sort of possibility of dealing with this, given all of the other things we've said about folks sort of digging in and, you know, the kind of emotions here and the lack of objectivity and the sort of post-truth moment that we're in. I think journalists have to get on their job and believe in the power of their tools to actually do something to chip away at this sort of rock-hard wall of, like, white supremacist investment that we're seeing. The bell cannot be unrung. 
This should not even be a debate. This Can the bell be unrung? Can this change? No, that debate has been had. And I take both of your points. I think this is a moment in terms of journalism for the necessary emergence of multiple narratives when it comes to the work of journalism. That this is something unknown, certainly for the left-wing liberal media, that is really a one-trick pony. It only knows how to do one thing, and that is to ridicule the far right and to imagine that they can simply reason their way out of what is ludicrous. And I think that the point is, in this moment of median resistance, there are multiple narratives that we need to think about. And one is, I agree with you, Dream. I don't think race is necessarily the way for liberal white media to engage this white identity threat. It ratchets up the base. It doesn't go in the opposite direction because we've had a campaign and an election that has been so profoundly about an emotionality politics. The idea of insecurity, threat, fear, the idea of resurrecting strength and a conquering nation. These are pure emotionality politics, not built on anything other than fear and threat, perched on not even policy, but the terrorizing of an entire people. And so for me as a working journalist, journalists need to sit down and say, how do we write our way, broadcast our way through these moments? What kinds of stories are we going to need to tell in order to make this work? And some of this is really going back to when you're doing investigative journalism, that the stories on the ground about your neighbors are the ones that move your neighbors. That there, of course, there is a role for the critical essay and that thinking piece. But that applies to a very particular niche population that is the liberal left-wing intelligentsia. Where you're talking about this massive Breitbart audience, the massive Fox News audience, that you need to explore emotionality policy, not politics. So in other words, exploring the ways in which the policy that they thought that they supported will really devastate their own lives. And there hasn't been enough of the absolute connection between the policy and how your daily bread, your daily life, your family environment, your future is going to be detrimentally impacted. So for me, it needs to be a both and. So yes, and not that we stop talking about race at all. I think for the black and brown people, this is an incredible and necessary moment that should be about resistance looking like reimagining self-care in this movement work and for white allies really thinking and looking about what does activist storytelling look like when you're essentially talking to your family? Because as you said, Dream, this is absolutely white folks' work. This is work that they have been unwilling to do, but it has never been so urgent as this particular moment and what we find ourselves in. And so I actually think specifically about my training and the multiple ways you were taught to explore and tell stories in order to reach different types of people with different socioeconomic backgrounds in order to ensure the point has been made. And I think that because journalism has become so lazy, because there was so much profit made from simply following the very basics of the absolute horror that was Trump's campaign, 
and there was not the realization that he was actually going to win, that no real thought or no real policy or no real framework was established for how do we do journalism in this era? What does media and the fourth estate look like in this area? Because it cannot look like what it has looked like before because you're not up against something that is familiar in that way. And so, yes, we're laughing at Francis Cresswell-Singh and the idea of the ISIS papers, which is extraordinary to even be speaking about the ISIS papers on the one hand and Breitbart and alt-right on the other. But yes, that is the world in which we live right now. But I do think this is a moment of multiple narratives and a willingness to explore arenas where certainly the white liberal media has simply never gone. So in other words, it's a moment to actually think about what it has meant to be a journalist, not a commentator, not a speculator, but a journalist. Closing thought to you, Brittany Cooper. I think that we should follow Black people's rage. I think it's a really good indicator of the things that we should care about. And so in this moment, I'm just really reminded this young woman who I know who I've done feminist organizing with named Renina Jarman always says Black girls are from the future. I think more broadly, Black people are from the future. I think that Typically, if you look at America, I had my dissertation advisor told me once, he said, look, black people are always 50 years ahead of white folks. And so whatever things are happening to us, whatever things we're doing are always markers of things to come, right? So like if you think about black women in the 1960s being maligned for being single mothers. And now, you know, we're seeing sort of an epidemic of singleness in the country and folks really redefining family, white women, you know, asking sort of for progressive ways to redefine family. That's just one example of the ways that the ways that black folks are thinking about what it means to move through the world. We understand what it means to live as exiles in places that have been powerful. And so America is now experiencing the decline of empire, as Dream said. But for black folks, this has never been, you know, we've never had a particularly imperialist experience here. We've always been on the been the underbelly of empire. And so we know what it means to survive. We know what it means to always sort of be anticipating devastation and be thinking about creative ways to kind of resist. And so one of the things that I'm really hardened by is watching the movement for Black Lives undertake a massive political education campaign. And so they've been doing these webinars about different places of their platform, because we are seeing this sort of hunger on the ground where folks are really like, want to know nuts and bolts things, like how to get a bill passed or tell us more about what white supremacy means. Like, we know what it means, but give us more of the language so that we can articulate our experience and we can really understand what's happening to us. But here's the thing. We live in a culture that's anti-intellectual and we live in a culture as well that is actively destroying public education. I mean, this is one of the ways that white elites assault working class white folks. This has always been their plan. White elites have never been on the side of working class white folks. And so now they're attempting to script again. And the way that they control the white working class is by using white supremacy so that all these white people just latch on to their whiteness. But white elites really want money and power. And so they're actively stripping these folks of education. And so I think what we're going to see is that in the next five to 10 years, there's just going to be a real hunger to actually know and to learn more. And there's not going to be the ability to sort of go to public school and get this kind of information because it's actively being stripped away. And so in that way, people are going to be following the lead of the movement for Black Lives, which has already peeped game about this and is already creating the kinds of platforms that can do that kind of work. And so I think in this moment that what gives me hope is that, again, I think Black people are from the future. I think we're already imagining what this sort of post-apocalyptic, post what I've been calling after America, right, after the fall of the empire, what that world looks like. So I think that whatever kinds of tools we create in this moment are the kinds of tools that we're just going to see white folks take up and then claim credit for. (laughs) 
in the next five to 10 years. But regardless of that, the tools are being created to help us kind of make it through this moment. And I think that that will focus on stories, on language, on the ability to have a way to sort of name the world in which we live and to name it really effectively. Because unless we have the language to name the problems, then we can't actually heal and confront the problem. And I think, too, the thing that I'm saying about rage really matters because Black folks are mad and we've been mad. We've been particularly mad since the killing of Mike Brown, but we stay mad, right? So remembering that rage is reasonable, because right now we're being told that white rage is a reasonable response to what's happening in America. But in my thinking, Black rage is the sort of most reasonable political response that we have. And so whenever Black folks are mad, the things that we get mad about are things that matter for everybody and that are critical for everybody's survival. When we're mad about water in Flint, that's a you know general problem, right, that all Americans need to be thinking about. And so I'm following Black folks' rage. I think that's the pathway to the future. And I think that all of the wonderful tools that come out of the clarifying nature of our rage are the things that are going to save us. We've got the words to change a nation. Time to read all about it. Just ask Emily Sande. You've got the words to change a nation, but you're biting your tongue. you spent a lifetime stuck in silence, afraid you'll say something wrong. If no one ever hears it, how we gonna Part one of our ongoing discussion, Reimagining Resistance in the Era of Number 45. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women of colour media podcast. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Dr. Brittany Cooper and Dream Hampton. The Spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, New York, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in Ghana on Star FM 103.5. And we're on air in London on ABN UK Radio. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on SoundCloud and iTunes. Finding our voices. 
media is definitely walking that tightrope, isn't it, though? is The Spin. Every week, one hour, one mic, three women of colour. Three brilliant women of colour. And we go global. I took on alligators and little rattlesnakers But I'm another flavour, something like a Terminator Ain't no equivocating, I fight for what I believe Why you talking about it? Just, just, just talking about it Some calling me a sinner, some calling me a winner I'm calling you to dinner and you know exactly what I mean Yeah, I'm talking about you You can rock or you can leave, watch me tip with You heard the lady. Now, shut up. Of course, she doesn't mean us. Time for part two of Reimagining Resistance in the Era of Number 45. It's the United Nations 61st Commission on the Status of Women, also known as CSW. And this year's theme, Economic Empowerment in the Changing World of Women and Work. Or, put another way... Work, 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 work. You see me, I be work, 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 work. You see me, do me, da, 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 da. Some Riri's mantra, if you're a woman in this world, you are a worker. So said UN Women Executive Director Fumzile Mlambo Nguka in the opening session of the CSW. She highlighted the extremely slow progress in global gender equality. More than half of all women workers around the world and up to 90% in some countries are informally employed, she explained. There are 190 million women in the informal sector in India alone. Here in Ghana, the informal sector is a major employer, the major employer, in fact, and it's dominated by women who are more than 50% of this population. Now, that sector does not enjoy the respect of our government, nor equal treatment when it comes to policy, nor equal focus when it comes to tax breaks. Women continue to earn consistently less than men. Fumzile spoke of the under-acknowledged, underappreciated and underpaid work of caregiving performed predominantly again by women. Virtually all economies rely on unpaid care and domestic work 
that is largely provided by women and girls. Yet, this form of work positions masses of women uniquely to be left behind. Positive changes in the world of work must enable care work to be valued and to be shared by parents and within the family unit. This will bring about far-reaching positive changes for women, societies and economies. When it comes to the world of resistance, social justice and movement building, care is a particular work that is done by black and brown women that is never paid and too often overlooked within communities and by society. In his opening address, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres explained that women are more than equipped to lead. What is required are more opportunities in the classroom, the boardroom, the military, in the world of politics and business, in participation in peace talks and developing technology. Take a listen. If countries address the gender gap at work, women can generate enough funds to underpin success across the 2030 agenda which was approved by all leaders at the United Nations in 2015. When study found that women's equality can add $12 trillion to global growth over the next decade, women and girls with better reproductive health and education have also better chances in life. They earn higher salaries, they invest more in the health of their children, and investments now pay dividends for generations. So this call was part of fulfilling the 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda on Gender Equality by the United Nations. And its tagline is, quote, leaving no one behind, unquote. Brazilian Ambassador Antonio de Aguiar Patriota is also the chair of the Commission for the Status of Women, and he's called on men to stand taller and more loudly for gender equality. He said men's support of gender equality meant confronting rigid notions of masculinity. Take a listen. As a man, I am convinced that men need to be engaged as gender advocates, speaking out as active agents and stakeholders who can transform social norms, behaviors, and gender stereotypes that perpetuate discrimination and inequality. Engaging men and boys for gender equality is a crucial part of overcoming the inequalities between men and women. This involves challenging rigid notions of masculinity and manhood. It requires men to question power dynamics in their actions and to take responsibility for change. So how does the world of women and work negotiate a call from the United Nations for progress and equality with the reality of 45's rollback of women's rights, civil rights, including defunding Planned Parenthood? How does a call by the Brazilian ambassador and CSW chair about confronting rigid notions of masculinity sit within an America that is literally championing the most rigid and toxic forms of masculinity? So this work of resistance takes its own toll, and so much of it is done or led by black and brown women. So let's talk the status of women and what resistance should look like in this era of number 45. Brittany Cooper, let me start with you. Your thoughts? I'm not sure what I think about this moment because we saw in the U.S. in particular that we could not overcome the sort of rise of white male populism and white male anger to elect the first female president. And then immediately that inability to do so was followed up by this kind of massive movement of women in the streets. And so on the one hand, in America, there seems to be a sort of mainstream resistance to feminism at any kind of 
level that shows up in policy, but also a kind of deep fear happening among women about what is going to happen now. So I'm still thinking through what I think about this moment. But it's my refrain today as anything is that I'm following the lead of Black people and in particular Black women. And so I was really excited on International Women's Day to see a sort of you know, massive consciousness around thinking about labor rights issues, thinking about striking, even for women who couldn't strike, wearing red in solidarity. And that was a call that was really initiated by Black women and women of color in the U.S. saying, we want to be in solidarity with women's movements around the world, with things that we're seeing in Brazil, right, with things that we're seeing in Europe, different kinds of protest movements. And so I think that we have the potential for a real kind of global consciousness raising. And I think in some way that if we continue to see Black women and women of color in the U.S. saying, we're following the lead of other global movements, what would be really great about that is that it would be anti-imperialist. So it wouldn't be this sort of mainstream white American feminism that says that we are ahead of everyone and now we get to lead the world. I mean, I think that that narrative is clearly over after these folks allowed Trump to be elected. Like, I don't think white American women can claim leadership of anybody anywhere, not in America and not anywhere else. But I do think, like, seeing Black women women in particular really trying to be in solidarity with global women's struggles against this diasporic white supremacy thing that we're seeing happening gives me a lot of hope about this moment and what is possible. And so I think that it's time for reimagining again a global women's agenda. I mean, that's the kind of work that we were doing literally 40 years ago in 1977 when Loretta Ross and a group of women of color created the term woman of color as a political organizing category to bring together lots of different women of color being impacted by these sort of global struggles. We're at that moment again 40 years later. And I think if we have any hope of getting it right this time and having a movement that speaks to women's issues, it's going to look like Black women in the U.S. encouraging women of color to get on board with a kind of global positionality around Dream Hansen. So much of this conversation takes us right back, at least if we limit it to the question of labor, into discussions around labor that belong to another era at this point, sadly. You know, I, I'm from Detroit, and I'm, I too am still thinking through this. But, I mean, when I hear the Secretary of the UN, Quatera, talking about say the $12 trillion that women's equality can add to global growth over the next decade. For me, it invokes what I hate most about the conversations around undocumented folks, you know, in America, this idea that their value is measured by how much they can contribute to capitalism. And in America, we have all kinds of predictors about poverty and women, and the number one predictor that a woman is going to fall off a financial cliff is pregnancy. And having a child in this country remains dangerous for women of color, particularly black women. Patrice Colors is a fellow with us right now, and she's doing amazing work around maternal justice. But in general, the kind of you know time it takes to raise a child in this country is in this moment, in 2017, it remains the greatest predictor of poverty. So we have some rhetoric around empowerment. We have some rhetoric around the contributions that women can, you know, make to hypercapitalism unprotected always because this is where our labor force worldwide is because of a very successful anti-union narrative. And unions were not perfect places. People like James Boggs, you know, had to fight to even get black folks protected under unions in places like Detroit and Chicago. But 
now we're talking about a post-union world and this kind of economy that has left more and more workers unprotected. And by that, I mean these small places where we're all doing work, whether it's your local Lyft driver or the sharing economy of having to rent out your home or a room in your home for a couple of weeks just to make rent in cities where rent is 30% of one's income or better. So, I, I mean, I don't have the sunniest <laughs> kind of way of taking in a lot of this news. I mean, I'm hopeful. I love the picture of the article that you sent us with these women chemists in Lomé, Togo. So I'm hopeful about what the rest of the world has to offer on this issue. I think that for the longest time, America had a lot of rhetoric, a lot of taking to the streets, sometimes in empty ways. I mean, I love the Women's March, and I, I really respect the women who organized it, but I stayed home that day. I was like, shoot, black, we did our job. I went out and voted for Hillary. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Which I couldn't believe, you know. And But I joined 95% of my sisters in doing so. So I took that day off and watched them on TV and was like, yay. But I also know the facts, you know, working as an advocate in tandem with organizations like Moms Rising. I know the facts about uh, the numbers, about the reality that American women face, at least. And it's it's quite sobering. It's, It's nothing to look forward to. It's a total uphill battle. This man's world would be nothing without women. Women lead, they love, they lean, they learn, they work. This woman's work all over the world. This woman's work, this woman's world. Oh, it's hard on the women. Now it's part, it's over. Now starts the craft of the fun. Ultimately, whether it is this woman's work or this man's world, everything is still everything. And change will come eventually. Oh! 
Extending across the atlas, I begat this Flipping in together on the dirty mattress You can't match this, rapper slash actress More powerful than two Cleopatras Bomb graffiti on the tomb of Nefertiti MCs ain't ready to take it to the Serengeti My rhymes is heavy like the mind of Sister Betty El Boogie spars with stars and constellations Then came down for a little conversation Adjacent to the king, fear no human being Roll with cherubims to Nassau Coliseum Now hear this mixture where hip-hop meets scripture Develop a negative into a positive picture. That's your hour. Thank you to Dr. Brittany Cooper and Dream Hampton. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. I hear myself. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is Reimagining Resistance in the era of number 45 on the Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always global, groundbreaking, and sexy. I'm your host, Esther. Rules out, don't copy, just copy properly. Everybody say policy, universal equality, responsibility, policy to survive economically. Some people do it comically, fruits of freedom, equality. Invest your money properly, people owe me your policy. Intellectual property, stealing, stolen commodities, so is controlling robbery, so lack of commodity. Clones, copycats, bother me, mine on black, that's follow me. Honestly, 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 all these jokers economy. Puppets with no autonomy, yup, it's food, you can me. See you looking, but you better take, take it easy. You tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher, take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. Too much ex mommy, take it easy. You're good with the sex, you be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. You moving bricks, but you better take it easy. Here's a tip. You too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend DT. And that dog sniff in the bag ain't last seat. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man. That's ketchup. Picture cleft, get the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost, and write for myself. Cause I'm a top celebrity, top celebrity, top. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.